the next stage is okay so how does flow work for you what you know how do you know when you're in flow and what are the specific uh, triggers for you and then anchoring those so people can access them on demand Hello and welcome to the Pro Rugby Pod. I'm your host, Brian Moylet. I'm a former Irish international age grade player. And each week I chat with a player, a coach or a person involved at the top end of the game to hear about their story, get their insights and find out what life is like in professional rugby. On Instagram, I'm the Offfield Rugby Coach. That's at Offfield Rugby. Please follow me there and let me know any thoughts or feedback you have for the pod. Please subscribe to the pod if you haven't already. Please leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. And also, please share the pod with some friends. Those simple actions have a big impact and are really, really appreciated. My guest today is Claire Sadler, who is the current USA Men's 7's mental skills coach. And she has also previously worked with England Rugby across many of their different teams, as well as high-level soccer teams and the Premier League. Outside of sports, she is an executive coach to leaders in business, a coach developer and a therapist, and that is through the company which she founded called Beyond Instinct. In the podcast, Claire talks about how your beliefs and assumptions can dictate what you are capable of and how they can hold you back. She talks about her role with the USA Men's Sevens, how she interacts and intervenes at training sessions when she does so, and how she's trying to impact the players. She talks about how you can access the flow state as a player, which is what every player wants to do. She talks about how you can understand patterns in your body and your physiology and how you can use this to avoid becoming anxious and allowing anxiety to overcome you. And how you can speed up or slow down your nervous system on demand to aid your performance and also aid your well-being outside of sport. Claire talks about some research around focusing your attention and the different senses and how this can improve your performance. We talk about how you can learn quicker and more effectively and the impact that sleep has on this and also on performance. Claire mentions some different things that you can do as a coach to structure training to improve the learning that your players have and improve their performance on match day. And she speaks about some techniques here taken from the army. We also talk about the difference between coaching English and American rugby players and also the difference in coaching men and women. And there's so, so much more in this episode. So here is episode number nine with Claire Sadler. I'm here with Claire Sadler, current mental skills coach for the USA men's sevens team, who's also worked with England rugby high-level soccer teams, and the Premier League, among many, many other things, which I'm sure we get into. Claire, how's your week been? It's been busy. It's been hectic. Children are back at school. But uh, thank you for having me. And I'm really looking forward to having a chat. Not at all. Thanks for jumping on. So I saw that when you left high school, you did a business with Japanese and German degree. So why did you change path then to mental skills and conditioning? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I went to university. I just knew that I was interested in languages and people in particular and culture. And uh, given the A-levels that I'd done, which was mass chemistry, physics and German, um, 
it was really sort of a, well, what can I do? Um, but the time in Japan made me think quite quite deeply about what it was that interested me. And I knew I wanted to do something with people and connecting with people and helping people, but I didn't really have a clue what. And um, when I actually left university, my first job, believe it or not, was for Sheffield Forge Master. So I worked in the marketing department, which was an interesting sort of sidestep. Um, and the various things that I did after that, I sort of found my way the long way round to what I do now. But when I look back, I've always helped people. People have always come to me with their challenges or issues or problems. And I, I kind of think it's in my DNA somehow. Um, and at some point, the penny dropped. Actually, this is what I'm really good at. And this is what, what lights me up, what gets me up in the morning. Mm. And so you were probably helping people. And was there a moment then when you realized, all right, I need to just change direction here and go for it it was actually a, a training course that I did um with uh, a company I did an NLP training when I was working in uh communications I worked for a company called Circus Communications with some very very big hitters in the industry I was really privileged to to work with them and I remember quite vividly we were doing a, a coaching exercise and um I don't remember what the issue was but I asked the person one question and it just changed everything. And the supervisor um, came over and said, you know what, you're really good at this. We've all noticed all of the support coaches, the main trainer, you might want to think about maybe doing a bit more of this. And that was quite a, that was quite a pivot point for me. That was quite a changing point for me because seeing the, the joy and the, the shock and surprise in that person's face that that one question, the difference that one question made to them, it was a bit like opening your favourite Christmas present and thinking, wow, this is it, I found it, this is what makes me want to get up in the morning and want to connect. Yeah, awesome. And so what was that... Um... What were you working with that person in? So was that like a training or what situation was that person in that you were speaking with at that point? Like, were they looking to looking for help, looking to have change in their life? And then you were working with them? It was a, a, a trainer's training around developing coaching skills specifically related to NLP, neurolinguistic neuro programming. So okay. it was my partner in an exercise, a learning exercise that the trainer had set. And um, it was one of many that we'd done. It was a quite a long course, but um, that particular moment was, I suppose, life-changing for me because it showed me that if you ask somebody even just one question that's the right question, you can really change their lives. Um, so that particular individual, we, we'd been asked to choose something quite small. I don't remember what the content was, but it was, you know, think of a problem, think of something you'd like to change, and then use this specific technique that we just learned to apply that and see what happens. And I was blown away that that one question just changed everything and you could see it physically in the person you could hear it in their voice you could see it in their breathing everything it was phenomenal awesome um I coach rugby now and for the past few years and that's something that I'm learning a lot is just the, 
the power of asking questions versus telling you know like when I started out coaching it's like do this do this do this do this and then as the more I go on just the power of questions but is there anything that people can do to ask better questions (laughs) uh that is a good question um probably so many things um I think one of the things that people can do to ask better questions is to first question how they're shaping the the question that they were going to ask and what I mean by that is that our our beliefs our values constrain us they shape our model of the world they dictate in many cases what we're capable of and often there are so many assumptions that we make so many things that we take for granted that we regard as true that aren't necessarily true so anything that we might ask almost has a bias built into it, if that makes sense. Mm. So sometimes just stepping back and really fully considering for a moment, you know, what is it that I want to ask? What is it that I want, you know, what direction do I want to take the person in or the team in or the group in? And is this the best question to ask? Because, the other thing that we do as trainers or coaches is we we assume our own assumptions, our own beliefs, our own way of learning is the way that everybody else does. And that is mm. definitely is not the case. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think uh, just something you mentioned there about your own biases. And I think it's so important that we check or look at our own biases. You know, because that influences, like you say, that influences how you coach or how you ask questions. Like, for instance, in rugby, I might really want them to do a lot of kicking. So I will ask questions based around to try and get answers to confirm that they should be doing more kicking. But that's my bias. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very true. And and I think the other thing to bear in mind is that the most insidious beliefs that we have are the ones that we don't even recognize as beliefs. We just think that's the way the world is. Mm. And we don't realize that they are potentially limiting beliefs in and of themselves. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. So um, that's really cool. So how long have you been working with, or sorry, how long have you been working in sports? When did you transition into that? Um, Team sports. I first started working with the the England Sevens in 2003, but I'd done work with individual athletes before then. I'd done some work with individual track and field athletes, with some golfers and some swimmers. Um, And I actually found that work. That was when I started working with Mike Friday and and Phil Greening. Um, I found that work uh, by recommendation, bizarrely enough, someone who knew uh, a guy called Carl Douglas, who was at at Gloucester Rugby Club then. And he introduced me to Dean Ryan. um, And I did some work with Dean. And Dean very kindly introduced me to Kevin Bowring, who was the then then head of elite coach development at the RFU. And I initially did some training and development work with the England coaches uh, within their uh, elite coach development uh, program structure. And then I did some analysis work for some of the age group squads. And then I worked with, with the men's sevens specifically. And uh, that was 
that was very rewarding work um, because as compared to the corporate coaching that I'd done up until that point and the individual therapy stuff that I'd done you just get immediate feedback with athletes particularly if you're around the training you know you can you know I might see something and pull someone aside and ask them a question we have a very short conversation or maybe slightly longer depending on what it is and then they go back and you get the immediate feedback of what's changed you know has it helped them accelerate the sprints has it helped them tackle better and that that's really to do that and to be able to do it in real time is is incredibly rewarding and and fun um mm. it really opens your mind as to what's possible what human beings are capable of awesome and what kind of questions would you be asking on the side of a sevens training as an example <laughs> just as a background because you're not a a rugby coach you're not a spe- no, sport specific coach so just for people listening they mightn't have kind of come across people like you that aren't a rugby specific coach that are getting involved with a rugby training and are having impact well it, it might be helpful to explain a little bit about what I'm looking for first and then the questions might yeah. make more sense um so I work with I work with the athletes as a group and also individually most of the work that I do is is very bespoke and it's building uh, the resources around that person as an individual as an individual as part of a functional part of that team so it's got to work at both levels so when I'm watching training or competition I'm looking for uh, physical markers if you like that isn't that aren't necessarily congruent so I might notice when people's pulse rate changes or their pupils dilate differently or their breathing shifts or their posture changes I might notice hesitation I might notice when they're being overly aggressive or they're hanging back all of those kind of things are things that I'm looking Mm. for and in context of what I know about that individual or in context of how does their behavior sit against what the rest of the team is doing and how well do those things gel together? It's quite a lot that I'm looking for. So I might just ask a simple question of, you know, I saw this happen. I saw you hesitate at the ruck or I saw you um, hesitate before you went for the gap or that tackle, you know, seemed really hard or whatever it might be, or that you were favoring this leg over the other. And I might just ask, what 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 was happening you know what was going through your mind or, or what were you thinking and then depending on what feedback I get almost their feedback or their response tells me where to go next and also how they respond physiologically to my questions so does their breathing shift does their posture sit a shift do they hesitate because they're all indicators of potential shifts in energy or focus or or state and those things are ultimately what drives our performance what dictates whether we do well or not and also what dictates our our well-being and our mental health as well yeah so you're you're kind of um helping them be a bit self more self-reflective would that i am i am yes i'm helping them be more uh, self-reflective and more aware but at the time yeah. when it's relevant to do that, because one of the markers of flow of great performance is that you're not thinking, you're just doing, you're just responding in the present moment. So to ask someone to do that 
to be more reflective during performance almost goes against the grain. Mm. So I also need to be mindful of when I'm asking those questions. Um, and it might be that um, as part of learning, so accelerating learning is something that I do a lot of work around, not just in sports, but with leaders and, and the private work that I do as well. Um, and that is a very different process to flow and performing well. So I may ask different questions then, and I may ask them to slow things down and be more reflective deliberately as part of, I don't know, learning to kick off the left foot versus the right or yeah. um, to, you know, to tackle in a particular way. I may, I may do that in that context, but it, it depends very much on what's going on because I've got to be mindful of we're kind of really talking about the difference between unconscious processing and, pro and conscious processing. So what is instinctive, what they're used to doing and what they're consciously aware of and how to balance the two to get the best outcome, not only for the individual athlete, but for the team as a whole as well. Yeah. And so is the goal of the flow state to move into that unconscious processing is that is that what it is so that we're not consciously thinking like oh i need to hit this rock this way i need to do this i need to do that that you're just doing and not so much thinking yeah it, you can think of it that way i mean the way i would define define flow is that you know there's there are markers there's a lot of research been done around it but basically you you have this sense that there's more time you're ahead of everybody else there's a real sense of connecting in terms of if you're playing as part of a team or competing as part of a team, a real sense of, if you like, the hive mind rather than the individual. And rather than planning two or three steps ahead, you're responding, your nervous system is responding to what's in front of you and it's natural and it flows, I guess, hence the name. Yeah. Versus when you're learning and you might be, working really hard and performing well but you're not in that state and you're it's a much more conscious process so ideally I suppose ultimately the goal is to teach people how to access their state almost at the flick of a switch if you like and also to make sure that what they're accessing is the most resourceful for them so you could use the analogy of almost like updating the the automatic programs or reflexive programs of behavior so that they're optimized so that when the person does access them you get the best possible result yeah and is there anything say someone listening to this like a young player a teenager or someone an amateur player are there things that you can do to help get you into that flow state because i know that anyone who plays sports knows what it is when everything's just going your way and everything the game is like slow motion nearly and you just walk off the field and just everything went well or kind of but um is there anything that we can do to help get us into that state more often absolutely definitely and and if you think of it in terms of three sort of branches of of, of ongoing development it, it, it's a helpful way of thinking about it one is there are core drills if you like that you can practice on a daily or a weekly basis in terms of using your senses and learning how to mobilize your body or your nervous system in a particular way or demobilize it, speed it up, slow it down, if you like, um, in the same way that there are 
cool drills that you might do to improve your passing or your rucking or your line out or your tackling. You can definitely do those things. Um, and those are the fundamentals or the building blocks, if you like, upon which specific tools rest that you might be taught. So if one branch is the, the core development or the mental conditioning skills, if you like, the repetitive drills that you can practice, what sits on top of that then are a set of tools that you can use to do certain things to do specific things in at specific times to focus your attention or divide your attention to manage your energy to control heart rate blood pressure uh, sensation you know numb pain uh, or even um amplify certain sensations so it's easier to hold the ball that type of thing and and then alongside that is one-to-one -one development which is to recode the reflexive behaviors that either hold you back or that are not optimizing your behavioral performance in certain aspects so it might be that um i mean recovery from injuries are slightly different or after injuries are slightly different things so we can tackle that separately but it might be that somebody always holds back off tackling on a certain side or with a certain player or with a certain team if you like or um you know if you're talking about different sports it might be that there's always one one hole that throws people and that's what i'm talking about when i'm talking about those reflexive behaviors so there's three layers to my mind of work um, of development that can go um in tandem to help people improve and the sooner that people get their heads around those core skills uh, development and drills and the tools the far better place they are to begin to perform better so those are a sort of set of things that they can learn and then the next stage is okay so how does flow work for you what you know how do you know when you're in flow and what are the specific uh, triggers for you and then anchoring those so people can access them on demand so it, it's partly developing the awareness of, of you as an individual or you as part of the team how do you trigger flow and then the second part is practicing turning that on and off using the various skills so you can use it at the right time so you might be sitting there thinking well that's great Claire but what do you actually mean <laughs> you know how how do we do that <laughs> if it's that yeah. easy how do we do it well there are there are a number of different ways, a number of different um, modulators, if you like, or tool buttons that you can use to mobilize your nervous system and make it go one way or another. And one that is very popular at the moment is breathing. You know, breathing is a really, um, a really f a relatively fast way of shifting your state and accessing different states on demand but most people don't really know much about it they might have done some googling and they've learned about box breathing or they've looked at potato potato breathing yeah. or they might have followed Wim Hof but understanding the principle of what happens when you breathe in versus what happens when you exhale and how do you use that balance of the two to shift one way or another so in a sense, it's very similar to what I was saying before about there are some core patterns that you can learn. So um, James Nestor's website has a, a wealth of useful information for anybody who wants to go look and interviews with really quite prominent experts in the field. Um, 
and you can learn those patterns and, and develop them and see when they work best for you. But the most effective way is to understand how that balance affects you as an individual at specific times and using that to, well, do I lengthen my exhale or do I lengthen my inhale? Should it be forceful mm. or should it be uh, soft and long or short? You know, and, and what's yeah. the balance between the two? And developing your own patterns and understanding which this and this is the thing that most people miss and it's absolutely critical no matter what tool you're using which is where am I starting from you know if you're driving a formula one car your strategy for the race is dictated not only by what happens on a moment by moment basis but where you start on the grid yet most people will pick a tool and go do you know what I've been told by I don't know Johnny Wilkinson this works great I'll use that but somehow I don't think it's that good because it only works some of the time. And it's a bit mm. like using the same golf club to hit every shot in a round. You wouldn't do that. You'd think, where am I? What's the context? What do I need to do to get to where I want to be? And therefore, which club is most appropriate? But in my experience, people tend not to do that, not just in sports, but in life. They go, yeah. they said this works, so I'll use that but they're not taking account of where are they now. So a good starting point is breathing, I think, and understanding breathing and going and investigating resources like James Nestor's website and seeing what works best for you. Because at the end of the day, it's about what works best for your individual nervous system, as well as when you pull out and look at the team level, what's going to work broadly across the team. So you you might have seen at half time, there are quite a few groups that are using breathing to shift states and uh, for recovery, but they're not using them all in the same way. Mm, It's something I find it so interesting. Breathing is something that I've kind of really dabbled more and more over the last like two, three years. And just two times that I use it, um, firstly, if I'm lifting weights, like if I'm, say, doing a bench press and I'm going for something really heavy, I'll like shorten my breath, like, <laughs> and like really shorten my breath so that I feel my heart rate goes up and you get more kind of anxious and stressed. Um, and just for that moment, then it gives you more energy um, or you get into a state where you are just ape for that, whatever, your nervous system just gets hyper pumped up and then other times if I'm say stressed or nervous I find like say in a match or in certain situations a really long exhale helps Mm. to relax so it could be in any time actually I'm a little bit nervous or whatever I'll just focus on my breath and get the inhale and then just a really prolonged exhale would that be correct those two times it it would because when you understand how that in breath versus exhale affects your blood chemistry it makes perfect sense so the shortening the breathing as you were talking about particularly breathing more forcefully that inhale and exhale particularly repetitive Mm. what it does is it gives your body is a cortisol boost So you get rising um, levels of um, neurochemicals that energize the body, that cause you to focus. So in order to engage in anything, to learn, to hold a a conversation or to perform, we need a certain level of um, 
certain neurochemicals like epinephrine, adrenaline if it's in the body, um, and cortisol. And if we don't have enough, we just don't engage. And often that's when athletes might talk about, well, I kind of wasn't in the right, I wasn't there. I just, mm. you know, didn't feel up enough for the fight, if you like. Um, and you can think of that as not necessarily going fast enough. The arousal level is is not, it's not high enough. But there comes a point where if you go too fast, you spin off the road, so to speak, where people are yeah. too hyped up. So it's finding that that balance. And generally, um, when you inhale, inhale is sympathetic function. Inhaling is increasing those hormones. It's firing the body up. It's mobilizing it. Whereas exhale does the opposite. It's parasympathetic function. It's slowing down. And the, the, it's the balance of the two together, the balance of the accelerator and the brake that dictates what direction you go in and how far you go and how fast you go, and also where you started from. So if you started in a quite a mobilized state, you're not going to need much accelerator to get to the level that you need to engage. And actually, it might be that you get to the point too quick, too soon, where you can drop off the edge, so to speak. Whereas if you're starting in a much slower, um, hesitate to use the word karma state, because they're subjective statements, you know, you can be really mobilized and incredibly calm and focused um, in terms of our sort of experience. So if, if we're slower, then you're going to need more accelerator to get to the, the point that you need to. So that um, rapid breathing that you were talking about, that's why it makes you feel more energized. But the key is keeping the body or the nervous system relaxed enough at the same time so you don't start to associate that mobilization or arousal as anxiety because mm. what we tend to do is our, our brain's a prediction making machine you know it, it decides what it thinks is going to happen based on past experience and often what people do is they go i felt like this before oh my god like this is when i was anxious yeah. and actually there's no difference or there's very little difference physiologically between anxiety and mobilization to go out and play at a match What's different is our perception of not only the context that it's in, but what those physical sensations mean. And that's a really important distinction to make. And then the exhale, a long, slower exhale, particularly gentler exhale, is going to slow you down because what you're doing is you're expelling carbon dioxide and that affects your blood chemistry balance. And most people don't realize that it's carbon dioxide that triggers the desire to breathe. So when you exhale and your lungs are empty, you're effectively at like a parasympathetic still point. So your ability to, to pause, to kind of be in the moment is much greater. Whereas if you hold your lungs full, it has the opposite effect. So if you want to slow down, focus on the exhale every time and particularly if you want to calm down focus on the exhale but what most people do is they say oh god you're really stressed take a deep breath and people go yeah. and it's, it's the, the complete opposite, opposite <laughs> yeah. of what you need you're adding yeah. fuel to the fire you know you're throwing yeah. logs on the fire and maybe a bit of petrol as well depending on yeah. where someone is but that's where understanding that mechanism is so important 
Mm. And yeah, it's so true. And you mentioned Wim Hof there earlier, kind of in passing, but uh, his breathing, which people can do on YouTube, it's like a 10 minute uh, follow along is all about it breathing in and out and then the exhale and holding it after. So you breathe out everything out of your lungs and you hold it for like a minute and a half, two minutes, and then you get better and better. But it's incredible the state that you go into. It's like mm-hmm. psychedelic, like when you go into, like you can do, the more you do it, when you breathe out like that, it's, um, it's incredible. Yeah, I just, that's when I started really understanding the power of it. I was like, oh my word, like this, your whole physiology changes, everything does. It does because you're, you're dialing up or dialing down the various neurochemicals and, and that's what dictates how well you can focus and how you shift or divide your energy and how tolerant you are of that space without having to breathe so the more that you do it's almost like a a fractionation process similar to what you get in hypnosis um that the two extremes help you go deeper one way or the other it's not technically the right way of explaining it but it's a Mm. hopefully an idea that people can can grasp and and the longer the more the more carbon dioxide you expel from your lungs the longer you can pause before you take another inhale because the receptors that respond to those uh, that that trigger your your body to breathe are not being stimulated because there's no there's less carbon dioxide in the lungs in the body yeah and just some yeah sorry something you mentioned there with anxiety and it's what you tell yourself and how there's very little difference between what you might feel when playing a game versus what you might feel then in like life outside of a game that causes anxiety and it's just the same thing in the body and it's what we tell ourselves that's i find that interesting so it's all about what you tell yourself isn't it like you can tell yourself oh i'm ready to go i'm in the moment i'm ready to play or you can tell yourself oh my word this is i'm gonna get crippled it's i'm too much i'm too high i'm gonna get crippled with anxiety here i can't play yeah and and it's not just the 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 telling if you like because most people would i think interpret that as internal dialogue as you know talking to yourself it's also the thoughts that actually are voices if you like internal dialogues but they're so fast that we don't recognize them as as dialogue or voices we we think they're just thoughts Mm. and and i think there's also an important um distinction to be made between what we're aware of consciously at that point and there may be internal dialogue and chat going on and oh no this is like before and i don't know versus unconsciously what's happening because our unconscious processing is at least at least half a second faster than conscious aware thought if you want to think of it that way and the analogy is the body responds first and then the brain gets the memo if you like the reality is there's no disconnect between the two it's like an amoebius band you know the the body stimulates the the head brain the head brain stimulates the body because the spinal cord goes all the way down into the body and we're constantly responding to our sensory perceptions in our skin and and in our our body in terms of pressure and temperature and and all of that good stuff you know and and also balance and 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 position but it's very much the nervous system learns when this happens that means something 
You know, in NLP, mm. they call it a complex equivalence. You know, in other areas, they call it semantics. But it, it's very much we kind of learn to anticipate. And, and Lisa Feldman Barrett, the neuros- neuroscientist, talks a lot about this in her work. We learn to anticipate what we think is going to happen. And that's what we actually respond to, not the reality of what's going on outside. Mm-hmm. You know, we respond very much to our internal construction of that. So people, and, and it's the context in which we assign that meaning that dictates our response. So, oh, my chest is tight. You know, I've got first time I'm playing for England or the USA or France or whatever it might be. Oh my God, I'm I'm stressed. But actually that tightness in another context might mean something completely different. I'm about to get my first kiss or, you know, it's my first <laughs> yeah. date with whoever it is. You know, it's a very yeah, yeah, different yeah. context. A, yeah. But the the physical sensations are often the same. So it's about the meaning that we assign to that stimulus being really clinical about it and whether or not that's actually fit for purpose in the context. And that's what changing those reflexes responses is all is all about so you can think of it in terms of a like a conditioned response you know i see a red traffic light and my foot's on the brake before i think about it yeah. and if i'm in the passenger seat and the guy that's driving doesn't brake when i would i brake for them doesn't matter i know i can't yeah, stop the yeah. car i still do it yeah. because that conscious awareness doesn't have any or very little impact on the unconscious processing. So the behavior's mm. already happened or the response has already happened before people realize what they've done. And that's one area where you can make such massive, enormous jumps in, in performance very, very quickly because those things can be recoded relatively simply in most cases. If there's trauma and there's other stuff going on, then it might take a little longer but, you know, you're talking maybe a 20 minute conversation, maybe an hour at most, might even mm. be less than that, depending on how well you know the person. So it, it's there's so much that can be done, so much that can be done. Yeah. And the a lot of that is simply around just stepping back from your emotions or you, those um kind of physical feelings you have say in your chest or like my I'm tightening up stepping back and analyzing it and just seeing it for what it is isn't it and then breathing and just becoming um an observer versus letting it all letting it all overcome you yes because what tends to happen is people they they are anywhere but where they need to be they don't stay in the present usually one of two things happen. They either regress, oh my God, this is like before. This is like when I broke my leg or this is like when I missed that kick or this is like when I got Mm. that yellow card. And their attention is taken up, if you like, with remembering that and running that program, if you like. And that in and of itself starts to stimulate those responses in the body. Or they start to then worry about what's going to happen if I can't stop this. And they're out in the future, if you like. So part of the key is getting them to stay present and being able to slow down their nervous system enough to be, as you said, um, almost independent of those sensations and sensations rather than feelings or emotions. Because people will often say, if I say, you know, how's your body feeling now or how's it going? And they go, I'm a bit anxious. 
say, okay, so what's your body actually feeling? Oh, well, I've got tightness yeah. here. My shoulders are up. I feel a bit stiff. I haven't got that energy that I know when I've got it, I'm ready to play. The first is a very subjective statement. The second is sensory feedback. And when you can teach people to be more aware of their sensory feedback, if you like, you've got so many more options to help them learn how to leverage different aspects of that to take them in whatever direction they need to go to perform well. Because the key to performance is being able to modulate your nervous system or adapt it, if you like, to speed up or slow down in response to what's happening in front of you. And to be able to do that ideally unconsciously. Mm. Um, but often what happens is people get distracted and they get distracted by the, I'm tense. Oh, this is like before, or I'm worried or, oh my God, our captain's just been injured. Mm. Yeah. Rather than where do I need to be? Because you know, people often talk about resetting or they talk about, you know, next job or focusing attention, but they very rarely know how to do that physiologically other than I'm just going to tell myself I'm not going to think about it and I'm going to put it out of my head most people can't do that very effectively and simplistically we've got a finite amount of energy anything that is not the task is a distraction whether it's a problem or not and it means it's it's a level down from the level at which you could be performing and you talked there about distraction and something you mentioned earlier, focusing attention. Is there are there any kind of tools that people can do? And I just think people are more and more me included, so distracted these days, like we have our phones and I find it hard to concentrate. Whereas I think when I was in school 10, 15, 20 years ago, I didn't have that issue, but just being on our phones all the time, I think that our attention spans have gone. But uh, are there things that we can do to have more focused attention and obviously in a match when you're playing that will help because the more as you just say the more you can focus on the job at hand or what you got you have to do right now the better you will perform versus thinking oh I missed a tackle five minutes ago and oh this is the weather's starting to turn and you know the past or the future it's you know the more that we can just Mm -hmm. focus on what what am I doing right now the better we'll play so are there any kind of things that we can do to improve that? There are things that we can do, and they range from quite simplistic through to quite neurologically sophisticated. Um, there are many different ways to focus of attention. To focus attention visually is just one of them. You know, we can focus our hearing in one direction or another. You know, you can stand in a room and there be eight or ten people and focus your attention on the conversation that's going on in the, the left, you know, the far left corner, yeah. or the one that's in front of you. And sometimes just being able to be aware of how you're doing that and when you're doing it. So some people do it by visualization. Other people Mm. do it by thinking about physically kind of stretching out that way, if that makes sense. Um, Practicing those things can help. So if you think of it in terms of the sensory building blocks, how how you pay attention tells your body whether or not to mobilize or demobilize. You know, and the the vision system is a really important part of that. And it's a a sliding scale and it's bi-directional. So it's no coincidence that when we become more mobilized, our vision tends to narrow. You know, our our, our pupils don't dilate and get bigger. They become narrower and our 
focus of vision becomes narrower unless you're in flow that's something different whereas when we're more demobilized our vision is much broader more like if you're looking at the horizon if you like yeah and depending on how you are looking at something narrow or broad focus dictates the level at which those neurochemicals are released to mobilize you or not and it goes the other way so you can change your focus of attention narrow it or broaden it and give your body the message to speed up or slow down but most people without practicing that obviously not in competition because that's not the best place to practice it training is the best place to practice it uh, on or off the pitch just getting used to moving that slider up and down is really helpful because it develops your awareness and it develops your understanding of what are the key points for you how far do you go one way or the other and it's the same with hearing it's the same with physical perception and movement you know our vestibular system where where our body is balancing and how it is in relation to gravity has a huge impact on how well we mobilize or, or not so you know something as simple as doing handstands can change your state and change how focused you are which might sound a bit odd but when you understand the mechanisms it's another lever that you can use so I think for people starting out um, the most basic thing is just be more aware pick one sense and experiment play with it notice how you pay attention because most people are distracted by the content this happened in the match or the coach said this to me or this happened in training that's not actually what's mobilizing or demobilizing your body most of the time some of the time it can be in terms of triggers but it's not the content it's how you are paying attention and how you're processing does that make sense it makes a lot of sense yeah it makes a lot of sense especially as you're saying um about the hearing of a conversation when in the big room like when you focus your hearing you certainly like i know that you can hear better uh, certain things mm. when you really listen out for certain things you can hear those certain things better. And um, yes. that's just something that really, yeah, dropped me. And then another thing that I was kind of thinking is um, when you were saying the handstand, body awareness. So it's something kind of in rugby, like if you're in a scrum and you are, for me, I played second row or play, and you just get a real feel for scrummaging in that position with those people around you. And the more you do it with certain people, it's you don't even think whereas yes. at the start you have to focus attention okay my bind here my bind here I'm gonna drive my feet into the ground I'm gonna do this 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 but after a certain amount of time you you don't think but at the start you're focusing all your attention on how it feels physically in that way and then if you move even one position over to the flank or to number eight or to the other second row even just one across it's completely different even though it's very it similar to someone looking and you have to once again focus, okay, now my right arm goes here. Now my left arm goes here and you have to spend a lot of energy focusing on your physical um, body awareness, I think is the term. Um, and that's Absolutely. something then, yeah, that just is the biggest one you get in rugby. I find in 15s is when people move into the front row and they just have to really learn a lot. Um mm and they might be strong they might be you know all those things they might have all the 
the physical attributes, but they have to focus a lot of energy physically to um to learn that, to learn their their body and their body awareness. They do. And the part of the reason they need to use so much energy is they're not just learning new patterns, they are unlearning old ones because there'll be triggers in the environment, the way that people approach or the way that certain situations are or the position of people on the field that trigger, particularly if they played in other positions for a long time or they've played them really well in a short period of time. depends on how quickly their bodies or their nervous systems, if you like, assimilate those reflexive um, movements and responses. But those those reflections are still there. So, or those habits, if you like, are still there. So it's a bit like a light switch. You know, if that switch turns on this set of six lights and suddenly I want it to to turn on a different set, I've got Mm. to connect them up in the right way, but I first have to disconnect them from the original circuit. Yeah. Or I have to tell the switch under what circumstances I want those lights on or this lights on. And that's where I think the process of learning and how you accelerate that learning becomes really important because most people are aware that learning is about repetition. You know, our nervous system isn't linear. It's not X plus Y equals Z. It's cyclical and it's more rhizomatic um, like um like the way mushrooms grow or bamboo is if you pull up all the roots it's a there's no beginning or end to the system so what you do in one part impacts on another it's not a linear process so achieving those levels of repetition is critical to the learning but it's also achieving them under the right neurochemical um conditions so that not only do people learn but the learning stays cemented if you like and most people aren't aware that those two things happen at completely different times. You know, your learning doesn't take place on the pitch. It actually takes place when you sleep mm. or when you have slow wave, um, slow brainwave periods that Andrew Huberman calls them um, NSDRs, non-sleep um, rest protocols. Um, yeah. And it's because the way that the learning is triggered, the way it's triggered is by a certain level of arousal, Acetylcholine is actually what marks out the neural networks for change, for learning. When we are mobilized and we're concentrating and where does my arm go and how do I bind and all that stuff. Um, But that won't stick unless you have the right amount of sleep or slow wave, uh, slow brainwave periods after that training. And that's not just about the sleep at the end of the day that's about the micro cycles that we go through in in an in any 90 minute cycle and throughout the day of intense focus followed by intense rest and there's lots of things that you can do at any level not just elite um sports to accelerate that process to make it happen faster and to make sure that you learn those things more effectively and that has just as much to do with how the coaching and the training itself is structured and how the information is given out and how people communicate with each other as it has to do with what the individual athletes then do with their bodies afterwards. And that's a really, I think that's a really interesting area for elite sports and and leadership development as well. Um, Yeah, it's, I read Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep. And just when you bring up there about the learning happening while you sleep, it is mind blowing and it makes such sense it's so obvious once you are aware of it like the Mm -hmm. the 
easiest example for me is when people are studying and they're pulling all nighters. And this mm. was in the book as well. He, they did loads of studies on it where people pull all nighters. They can't remember anything. No. You know, because they're so tired, their brains are like wrecked. And I thankfully never really cared too much in school that we pull in all nighters. But uh, like, you know, like I remember uh, without knowing, I was just like, well, I'm just going to get a good night's sleep and I'll just go into the exam and do my best versus remember these people like stress, and, like just not sleeping for days. And like your yeah. brain is like, think about it, you're just so exhausted that you can't, nothing sticks. No, and and with chronic lack of sleep, you know the glial cells that that clean up the debris at the end of the day to help our brain function properly, actually start attacking healthy healthy tissue. So you're yeah. almost you know the very neurons that we need to remember yeah. things. Um, and the other thing that it's important to remember as well is that um, learning or memory is state dependent. So if you learn something in one state, say in a, a try to learn something in a state of anxiety and then you try to recall it in a state of relaxation it's almost like that information's mm. in two different rooms you, and this is why i think something that the military do and they do it really well uh, particularly in the seals and the sas is they teach you to train as you compete yeah. so if you're going to do it in competition you better damn well do it in training the same way because otherwise the state if you like it's not the same, you don't access the same information and the reflexive behaviours aren't the same. And I, I know that they were, um, that she saw this, this has had quite serious implications for some branches of the military where usually in shooting, they're taught to holster their weapon in between shots when they're training. But you're in, if you're in active duty and you holster your weapon in between each you're shot, gone. you're going to get shot. Yeah. And they actually changed the way that they trained that in certain units because of that. Because under pressure, you know, under pressure, we resort to instinctive behavior. We resort to reflective, reflexive responses. And that's why training that way and teaching people how to do that is so important and it's also why that third branch of recoding those reflexive responses whether it's for sport or whether it's in leadership or whether it's treating trauma is so important because it's the things that we do under pressure and it's the things we do without thinking that dictate how well we perform and how well we are and the state of our mental health but so much is dedicated to conscious thought, to tasking, to, you know, most training, most coaching is conscious led. And there's definitely a place for that. It's important, but that's not how you get swift, deep seated, lasting change. You've got to be able to do both and to have the right balance depending on the context. You know, if you've got somebody, for example, who's coming back for quite a serious injury, there are definitely going to be markers when they go back on, into competitional training. The nervous system will respond, where, depending on what scale they respond to. It might be that they can no longer tackle the same way or they can't focus their attention the same way because their body is metaphorically telling them, oh, don't do this. Last time we did this, we got hurt. We're not doing mm. that anymore. And it's not a conscious thing and it's not a lack of toughness. It's simple self-preservation and left unchecked. Those things can can end people's careers. 
you know, but they can also propel people's forwards when they're dealt with in the right way. And that's one area I find really interesting in injury recovery and how you accelerate regaining movement faster, how you accelerate mental or psychological recovery from injury and what you can do in the window of six to eight hours after someone sustained an injury to do your best to make sure that those issues don't happen. And there aren't many, there aren't many setups that I know of that have a consistent approach to that. They've got great resources for mental health um, sort of support if someone's finding it difficult or if they're depressed. They've got amazing physical rehabilitative and nutritional um, rehabilitative resources. But bringing that all together, so when they step back on the pitch, or they go back in the pool or get back on the horse or in the car or whatever it is they're doing, so that there is no lag in terms of being able to use those limbs the same way they were before and there's no impact on the game, I don't see that very often. And it, it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, I that's so interesting you say that. I um, got surgery on my shoulder and come back from that and it, the way I explained it to people was it didn't feel like my shoulder and it was like oh my left shoulder yeah but my right shoulder it's like the physio says yeah you've hit this marker that marker but it just didn't feel like my shoulder what is something that people can do like say once again a, a young player someone outside of a professional environment that they get injured whatever it is you know they're out for six weeks or two months or whatever it is what can they do to accelerate their recovery from that injury there's a few things that they can do that they don't necessarily need professional help for um with professional help with someone like me there's a lot you can do and you can accelerate that process but if you don't have access to that the first most important thing is what you do in the window the six to eight hour window after you've been injured because that's when um if you think of it this way, the the memories, if you like, or the experience probably more accurately is consolidated in a particular way. So anything that you can do to overload your visual and your kinesthetic circuits at that point can, can help to prevent that consolidation from happening in a way that's going to cause problems. So what does that mean? <laughs> what does that actually mean? Absolutely. You know, if you play something of, of sim- something as simple as just playing Tetris, actually can really really help as crazy as it sounds you know doing providing obviously that you're not going to injure yourself further physical movements you know just sitting zoning out watching the tv probably not the best thing to do um but the reason why tetris works so well is is because you have to you have to think about your strategy and you're overloading those circuits or you're occupying them if you want to think of it that way in a way that perhaps not always but perhaps those sensory triggers won't get um consolidated or fixed in the same way because the biggest issue with recovery from injury is that there are markers in the game or there are triggers in in the circumstance that cause your nervous system to respond adversely to either experience more pain to hear your leg breaking again to or simply to feel dissociated like you were saying it didn't feel like your shoulder mm. so you can't you don't have the same proprioceptive 
feedback in terms of where your body is and how to use it as almost like a pattern interrupt so it can be thought of almost like a phobia it's not quite the same but it's very similar you know a phobia is when phobia is actually a really useful process and I'll explain that um because when someone has a phobia what they have is the ability for their nervous system to respond every single time to the same stimulus in the same way without conscious effort that's a really useful thing the only thing that's not useful is the the fear if you like or the 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 emotion or the sensations that that circuitry is connected to so you know i've done loads of work with with phobias um over the years and it never ceases to amaze people, one, how quickly they can be resolved, or two, that they can be resolved. But essentially what I'm doing is I'm recoding that reflexive response so that the trigger triggers a different circuit. So instead of fear, maybe it triggers confidence. Maybe it triggers feelings of strength. Maybe it triggers speed. Yeah. you know or 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 a particular feeling when you make contact and you know you've got a great tackle yeah yeah that's a really useful thing to be able to do so ap- applying that in the context of injury can produce very quick results but going back to what we were saying about well what can someone young starting out do um the other area to think about is with physical recovery what impedes recovery of movement is not so much what people think which is lack of muscle stimulation as people always think oh you know my arm looks really small because I haven't used the muscles actually most of that degradation if you like or reduction in size is not from the muscles it's from the nerves and and it's really important to continue to stimulate the nerves and the reason it's really important to continue to continue to stimulate the nerves is not just because of motor control. It's because our map, the homunculus in the brain, which is the, the, the physical map of the body in the brain, updates in real time. So if you stop using your right arm, there's competition for that territory that was controlling that right arm. It might be taken over by something else. And that imbalance means that when you then have your arm healed and you go back to passing or catching or tackling or rucking or whatever you're doing, that there's an imbalance in the map and that imbalance mm. translates into an imbalance in movements. And often that's the biggest lag for people coming back from injury. So to find ways to stimulate or keep that map updated. And one of the simplest ways of doing that is mirror therapy, which is what they use for stroke victims. So when you're doing your rehab exercises, you get the visual input or stimulus from your healthy limb doing the exercises and your brain is tricked into thinking it's the injured side that's doing it. And that keeps that map updated and it it stimulates the nerve, nerve endings as well. There are lots of other things that you can do to do that. And, you know, I've worked quite closely with with um athletes very recently actually to do that but that's really bespoke it's about what's right for that individual under those circumstances and stimulating those reflexive responses so not only does that 
nerve stimulation happen when they're doing the rehab exercises. It happens throughout the day, almost on autopilot. And when done the right way, it also happens in sleep. So going back to what you were saying about Matthew Walker's work in sleep, one of the things that they found quite recently is that if you're learning something or you're performing a particular movement and there are tones playing in the background, if you then play those tones while you're sleeping, the brain cycles through that learning again whilst you're sleeping. So you get an accelerated development. So there's there's a lot there's a huge area of neuroscience and neurobiology that you can harness to and apply very practically, translate into very practical things to accelerate your development, to accelerate your recovery from injury, to help you to perform better. And not only that, to have a lot of fun while doing it, you know, to really enjoy it. And I, I yeah. think that I find that fascinating. Yeah, I do too. And it's something that when I I had heard it a while ago about that um mirror was it mirror therapy you said mirror therapy yeah Yeah, I had heard about it and how to to think you know to think that your hand is moving and to think that you're you're moving your arm and exercising and I I wish I'd done it more or learned more about it it's something that just came into passing but I I think it really makes a lot of sense and um it's people even I think could feel it normally in that when you're not thinking at all about that say you hurt your leg and you're like all right that leg is hurt and you just don't think about it at all and then a couple of weeks later it comes back to running you haven't thought about it um Mm. moving it and then you're trying to go from zero to a hundred so what you're saying is that therapy kind of just keeps your brain firing those thought firing those nerves and thoughts and then you'd kind of not you don't skip a beat but you're back in the flow of it quicker. done in the right way yes done in the right way definitely yeah. and and that is a, a very small kind of portion of, of the things that you can be doing but it, it requires access to the you know the right resources and I suppose people like me that, that mm. understand that and and I think one thing I just want to stress is certainly with the mirror therapy the key is the visual input so you can think about moving the limb but you, the body needs, or the brain, I suppose the nervous system needs the visual input through the eyes. That That's critical because they also did the same experiments without that and it doesn't have the same okay. effect. But it's the basis upon which um, phantom limb pain is treated, mirror boxes. Because often when, and I think this relates back to what we were talking about with injury, often when people have limbs amputated, particularly under emergency circumstances if they've been in a car crash or something or had a particularly bad um, accident often the imprint if you like if you want to think of it that way that's left in the brain is of that limb in a very uncomfortable difficult painful position and that's sort of that's the representation that they're left with which is sort kind of what what causes the pain mm. or the perception of the pain so therapy with mirror boxes so you put your say you lost your right arm or hand you put your left one into the box and you move the hand or the arm into a position that's more comfortable <clears throat> and the pain is relieved because the the homunculus is updated basically yeah. which is is quite amazing when you think about it <laughs> it is it's so interesting um thanks so much for your time you've been amazing but just one or two last things but how have you found working with the american 
athletes, the American sevens team versus the English. So I'm, as you can tell, I'm from Ireland. I lived in the States for <laughs> a couple of years and now I live in Vancouver and uh, people were so different, you know, just culturally. And there's some, you know, hugely positive things. Like I learned about like their confidence and their outlook on things. I found the Americans were so, yeah, just so confident. Whereas I think British and Irish people doubt themselves a lot. But what was your experience with working with that team? That's an interesting question. Uh, there definitely are some big differences. You know, I, I work with the women's England sevens as well as the men's. So um, I think I think the biggest difference is the level of diversity in the squads. Um, mm. Generally speaking, not across the board, but generally speaking, people who play rugby come from a, a particular type of background or culture or education system. So there's less variation across the team in terms of what they're used to, how they bind together, how they communicate, what's accepted as standards of behavior, if you like, in terms of cultural norms. Whereas in the US, worlds apart such a huge level of diversity mm. which is part of the strength of that squad and team I think yeah. and their ability to accept that diversity um, and embrace it and learn from it is is phenomenal um, you know they're very both in both instances I found them very open very welcoming um, perhaps a little skeptical at first, which is okay, you know, very much. So I always say to people, don't take my word for it, you know, try it, make up your own mind and let's figure out what works for you. Um, and the work ethic, I think is probably quite similar. Um, you know, they're very dedicated, really want to make a difference. Um, and I think particularly with the US squad, is a real sense of family. I mean, I, I think you get that anywhere with rugby, real sense of community kind of once you're in, people look after their own, they really do. Yeah. And they rally round. In some ways, that's almost at a different level in the US, I think partly because of the diversity. And they're just willing to, to try, you know, they really want to improve, they want to build this legacy, they're pioneers. And, and, you know, I think their ability to commit, I know things have been slightly different with the England setup recently with what happened with COVID and the programme and everything. But up until then, you know, these athletes probably would have learned more stacking shelves in, in supermarkets and they gave up so much. And I think that tenacity and that commitment is is not to be underestimated. Um I think the other thing is the willingness, the common willingness, which I've seen in both squads to embrace when things don't go well and actually really think quite deeply and learn from it um, and to to kind of be a man about it and hold your hand up if you kind of did something that wasn't quite right. Mm. But to do that in a way and to communicate in a way that it's not personal, you know, I think that's something that they've worked very hard at in the with the US squad, particularly with the dogs. Um, you know, and it, it's something that that might particularly, you know, the whole management team, but might particularly is is very hot on. You know, you got to take responsibility for yourself and be there. You know, you you play for your for your buddies, not just yourself. You know, you protect each other, you fight for each other, and you do the right thing. And I think the other thing that is 
really important is is something I think Matai talked about this when he spoke to him, which is this idea that everybody plays a part. It doesn't matter if you're on the squad that gets on the plane that goes to New Zealand. Everybody has their responsibility to do their bit, whether they are, you know, on Zoom at the end of a, you know, a a, a phone, if they're on the, the, the site, if they're in the 12 or not. And and that's something that they take really seriously. And they do that not only in terms of preparation for competition, but also through training. So when guys are injured, they're included. You know, their feedback is just as important. And I think that is is really important and very valuable. And I think it's testament to the kind of setup that they've developed and, and the camaraderie, you know, that they've developed. Um, and they're happy to have a bit of fun as well. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> First, I just one more thing. But first of all, congratulations on the work you've done with the e or with the dogs, the men's sevens. Because when I was talking with Matai last week, and when you were talking there, I was like everything. It was just clicking with me that all the things that you're saying he was talking about. So how the diversity is their strength, and um, mm-hmm. the importance of the people left at home. Just all the different things you said there. He talked about as their strength. So I'm um, yeah, fair play. Um. but so where where can people find you where can they find me um well they can they can email me claire at beyondinstinct.com and they can look at my um website beyondinstinct.com uh i'm also on instagram not much activity there at the moment uh though with the same um marker but i'm always happy to have a chat i really genuinely think that it's good to share ideas, compare notes. So I, I'm always happy to to have a conversation with somebody and I would welcome questions or or um, inquiries of any nature. So awesome. good to have and a conversation. Awesome. <clears throat> and then sorry, one last thing. You mentioned that you worked with the England men's sevens and women's sevens. So yes. I obviously play rugby. I'm a man and coached men and boys for four or five years. And then for the past, two and a half three years I've just been coaching women and I've I've loved it and I've found it learned a lot and mm-hmm. what is your experience in the difference between coaching men and coaching women and I suppose what I'm getting is there anything I can learn <laughs> <laughs> um <clears throat> gosh um the one thing that springs to mind is in some ways I think women question more I don't mean challenge I think because they with the changes you know it is changing but they haven't had the same exposure they haven't had the same opportunities as men and I think because of that they can be more hungry not that men aren't hungry they are it's just more what else can I do how else can I improve how Mm. can we support each other and I think that that's important. I think generally men and women tend to learn slightly differently as well. Um, there's always individual differences, but I think women, certainly my experience was they wanted more discussion. They wanted more why. Whereas a lot of the guys that I've worked with are very much like, I don't, not interested in the neuroscience. Just tell me what to do and I'll yeah. do it. Yeah. Obviously there are, exceptions to that you know there are people who I've worked with 
both in the US and in 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 the UK who are very interested and and some of them want to pursue this as almost a second career um so there's always exceptions to the rule to the generalizations if you like um and i think do i add to that <laughs> i'm not quite sure if i can <laughs> um yeah no that's what you just said there resonates so much and um with uh, girls just asking questions and it's like well, why would I go here why did that why whereas with boys it's you're nearly trying to like listen to what I'm trying to say you're trying to get them to <laughs> you know they never ask any questions they just do it it's, they just go off it's just like just stop talking I'm just going to do and it's like they're just nothing at all whereas girls are constantly after training like what could I've done there what could I do here and maybe it's a bit it's interesting you know maybe it's and I think it is a bit because they haven't had the same opportunities with say even playing sports growing up that boys might have had and maybe it's a bit inherent in their nature also but it's something that I've really enjoyed as a coach because you can give more and more information then whereas with boys it's like you just you say something hope it sticks and but just let them at it I find (laughs) I tend to find that that the guys ask more questions once they've been and done it and either it works really well or sometimes it doesn't work well, and then they want to have a conversation about, well, how come this is an inconsistency? What what can I do? What am I doing? How does this work? And then that's been the times that we have the more in depth conversations, mm. um, you know. But in general, it, it's definitely more look right, go try this, and not that the girls don't want things practically. Of course they do, but very much more of the why and the discussion and. And how does that work? What what am I doing? You know, why does this breathing pattern be, is it more effective in this instance than that one? Or why might this be more effective for me? I think definitely this one of the similarities, though, is how much they want to help each other yeah. across the team, you know, yeah. and that has been consistent between the UK and the US as well. They're very keen to help each other and share learning, which is great. That's awesome. I'm coaching this afternoon, so I'll take that with me, the why in the discussion. But it may, it resonates and makes perfect sense. I'll just uh, focus on it more. Yeah. It's like- One last tip, if you're giving someone the why, um, if you've had a period of about 15, 20 minutes intense kind of practice or conversation, if you can give them just bouts of sort of 10 15 seconds of of downtime if you like in between where they're not necessarily thinking about anything that repetition cycle that we talked about with about with the learning they go the brain goes through that hundreds and hundreds of times within that 10 seconds so you get an accelerated learning effect as well so timing that is is really important cool so maybe giving them 15 seconds to breathe or relax yeah, and, and not necessarily directing them. So instead of asking them to think about what you've said, you, you just take 10 seconds and it's almost like downtime, the default mode network takes over. And But they've done studies, um, I think it was a lab in Stanford, and these are quite recent. You know, this is cutting edge neuroscience. Mm. This is the last sort of three or four months where that the impact of that accelerated cycling can produce results of sort of, I forget what the numbers were, but they were statistically significant in terms of advancing the learning. You learn far quicker um, because, as we talked about before, it's the downtime when those 
learning connections are cemented you know it's actually the dopamine that that cements the learning so the acetylcholine marks the the neurons when people are mobilized and they're learning they're doing the stuff or they're having the conversation and then the downtime and the 20 minute nap after training or the 10 seconds in between or the sleep at night is when the dopamine cements them and that's when the learning is consolidated you've got to have both for it to work effectively but often we miss the last bit. We do lots and lots of intense focus yeah, and no intense rest. Yeah, no, for sure. Thanks, Emil. I'll take that on. Pleasure. Um, yeah. <laughs> Claire, thank you so, so much for your time. I have so enjoyed the chat and uh, learned so much. And I know that players <laughs> or coaches listening to this will, will pick up so much as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's, it, it's been really fun. Cheers. Cheers. After I stopped recording and I was chatting to Claire briefly, I was saying to her how I could literally have talked for hours and hours um, in that conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. But I was conscious she had a meeting just after. What I really liked learning more about was how to access the flow state because as a player, that's literally the goal is to be in the moment and feeling like the game is in slow motion and it's just all about getting into that place so really enjoyed that part i also love chatting about stepping back from your kind of emotions and feelings and not processing them as anxiety and that part of it using the breath work exhalations to calm down and slow down and how you can change your breathing to change your nervous system as a coach i really like the part where she was speaking about giving some time for things to process so giving players some time to process things like she mentioned the kind of 20 seconds after doing something and how the learning actually takes place when people sleep and i was kind of aware of that but um yeah that was a good learning for me i also really liked lastly the part about focusing your attention and how that aids you in your learning and for me it really resonated with playing second row and scrummaging and just focusing your attention on your body and the feeling and getting connected with the other people around you and how yeah you do learn so much quicker when you focus that attention and and when she was speaking about the theory and that side of it just yeah the scrummaging really really resonated for me and this would of course be the same with every part of the game be it your lineouts, learning how to lift learning how to kick learning how to do any i suppose for me personally when i'm playing the way i'm gonna take that is that instead of going through reps and doing it for the sake of it that i really focus my attention on exactly what i'm doing how my body feels during that where I'm putting my hands and my feet, whatever, when I'm learning different things. If you enjoyed the episode and learned something from Claire, please, please send it on to a friend. That would really mean a lot. And if you haven't already, please subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you're listening to it, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or a smaller platform so that you don't miss one. Next week, I will be speaking with a former New Zealand under 20 player who has played in the MLR and has played in Japan. I'm pretty excited for that one. 
really interested in learning more about rugby in Japan and how that was culturally. That player has certainly had a few interesting experiences. If you have any feedback for the podcast for this episode, say if there's some things you liked learning about or other questions you would have liked me to ask Claire, or if there's different guests or topics you would like me to speak about, please connect with me on Instagram. Send me a DM. On Instagram, I'm the Off Field Rugby Coach. That's at Off Field Rugby. Yeah, just send me any thoughts you have there. Would love to hear them. Thanks for clicking in and listening today. Really appreciate your time. Have a brilliant rest of your day. Cheers.